Today, we geek out about the final season of She-Ra, Robin goes to the beach, and we talk with Dylan Carmichael about redefining black masculinity. All this and more on The Leftscape! Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Hi, I'm Mary McGinley. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. And we're going to start off our show today with three random facts and the news. So the first fact is on July 7th, which is the day before the show drops, uh, in 1992, the New York Court of Appeals rules that women have the same right as men to go topless in public. Yay. And yeah. Free the free the nipple. Sadly, Facebook has not gotten with that. Facebook is behind the times. Because hmm. men's nipples are okay on Facebook, but women's nipples are not. Uh, fact number two is random. It's in <laughs> 2006, a Coca-Cola employee offered to sell Coca-Cola secrets to Pepsi. Pepsi responded by notifying Coca-Cola. I think that's very honorable of them. And uh, my fact of the day is that uh, my dad passed away on this day back in 2006. So I am remembering him today, Carl Miller. He was a cool dude. I miss him a lot. Baruch Hashem. That means may his memory be a blessing. Okay, so now we're going to talk about all of the news that we could possibly handle this. Oh, week. boy. Yeah, and <laughs> we have to stipulate that while we're recording, it's just the end of uh, July 4th weekend. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, yeah, of, of course, a lot could happen between now and when, right? <laughs> yes. In this in this day and age, certainly can. Yeah. But just first a few things I want to uh, say that we're going to have Dylan Carmichael Coming up in the interview later in the show, he has a project called Redefining Black Masculinity. And this has been such a long time in the making. I discovered him on Instagram and he's got some really interesting posts, um, really inspirational posts. And we were like, oh, we should, I would love to do an interview. Are you interested? And it was like, yes. And then we just, both of us took a long time to get back to each other. And then like a pandemic happened and, <laughs> and then there were just protests and things happening and he, he's in Newark, I think, or in, in the area of Newark, New Jersey. And uh, there was a lot happening for a while. <laughs> we got it together. So I'm, I'm really happy to have him on the show later. Cool. And we got some responses on Twitter. Really? From things. I just wanted to share some stuff. Uh, .com Shadow, who is a fan of ours and a patron, actually uh, said... Sent out, a, you know, un, unrequested by us. I guess we request reviews and things, but, but this was, you know, just out of the blue. Dot com shadow said, dear tweeps, <laughs> at, at Leftscape, one of the few podcasts out there that won't make you want to, 
demonstrate your device. Come to, come for the blanket fort. Stay for the frank but positive talk about news, sexuality, self-care, and all the implications thereof. Well, that was nice. That's so sweet. Thank you. Very cool. And uh, then we thank them for the shout out. And then they continued, you lovelies help me keep sane during all the insanity. That's a tricky tight rope to walk and you do it so well. Oh, wow. That gives me a news and current events to stay informed, but not so much that I saturate into that I feel awful now stage. Well, no, well we're feeling the same way, I think. I spend a lot of time <laughs> feeling awful about the news. So and then we share. I'm glad that I'm not like, yeah. sending that out over the airwaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so that was very cool. Thank you. And dot um, com shadows at D-O-T-C-A-L-M-S shadow all one word and uh it's a it's a good follow they they like to torment <laughs> again and just you know put out some good thoughts on what's happening in current events so thank you for that shout out and last show i was talking about yacht rock and heard a dj set by hartford yacht goats um the thursday think after our show came out what's that their name still cracks me up and it probably always will I, it's a great name <laughs> and and they were excited about having gotten a jeffrey osborne tape and i remembered that we were talking about like how do you get cassette tapes these days or you know whatever and i just you know tweeted nice we were wondering on our show how you amassed your tape collection and they said <laughs> had some tapes already when first started djing those were ones i got back in the 90s like steely dan do Doobies, Boz, and Pablo Cruz. And that makes me laugh because like back in the 90s for those artists is just uh, funny. But anyway, <laughs> at first searched on eBay, but the breakthrough was discovering Discogs Marketplace where I could get Yacht Rock tapes shipped from all over the world. Oh, wow. That sounds, that sounds good. Discogs, it's like eBay, but very specific to music and you can, you know, find lots oh. of stuff there. I, I, should, cool. I should check that out. I have, I have, I tried to just, get rid of all of my 45s in a yard sale and some guy was pulling through them and he goes, no, 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 no. You should really just sell these individually. And it's like, oh my God. So maybe I'll try doing that. Yeah. And if you, I might know people who might be interested. So we could, okay. I'll compile a list. Cool. <laughs> and yeah, I have like a lot of really weird ass 45s of like prog rock <laughs> and, and teeny bopper hits of like the seventies. So Oh, yeah, I totally want to see that collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my T-Rex 45s, yeah. Uh, nice. Uh, so, Robin, you went actually went, got to the beach this past weekend. Mm. Yeah, did a thing, like a social thing. <laughs> oh, my God. A yeah. Thing. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was interesting. You know, I, I go to a beach um, that is not, it's not like a boardwalk resorty type place you know so i was i would be more hesitant to go to a place like that where you could just wind up in big crowds you know you mean like asbury yeah something like that or see or like wildwood right exactly um but the uh, on sandy hook you know there's a lot of space there's a bunch of different beaches and things like that so you know i felt comfortable trying it out and also i've been hearing news that you know, really being outdoors where there's a lot of fresh air is if you're going to be in a place that's around people, that's like the best scenario, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the, the droplets aren't able to hang around long enough 
for you to to breathe them in and get an get sufficient quantity to get an infection. That's the the current understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I got there pretty early, and there's a pathway where you have to walk to get down to the beach where you know it's it's pretty easy to encounter people. So like I wore mask on that whole walk and um quite a few other people did it was sort of mixed bag whether people were wearing masks or not at that point but i definitely did and that was okay and then getting down to where i met a friend where uh she had already set up and everything and it was it was good early on you know not too many people i felt like i could socially distance and feel comfortable overall you know i definitely brought all my own stuff so i wasn't sharing food or drinks or anything like that that was fine. I think that was good. The thing that I found interesting is that as people started to arrive and she had met someone who was expecting a few more friends, people sort of staked out space and they sat on their own blankets and everything was good. And I felt, okay, this is this is cool. This is like a workable way to have some social time and not feel too nervous necessarily. And then someone showed up who was like, hey, you want a hug to somebody? <laughs> And then someone was like, oh, are we, are we doing hugs? I'm not, I wasn't sure. <laughs> and then it, it was very odd. It was like the first person who wanted to break social distancing kind of made that offer. And then I don't know I can't say all of them, but most of them then just abandoned distancing. Oh, my God. And started really? hugging. And, you know, one friend was like sitting on another person's blanket and hanging out and just, I think someone, got, you know, was, there was a, a guy that was giving massages and someone got a massage and it was a weird, it, it was weird to observe that. It was like everyone was sort of doing the customary thing until one person didn't want to, or even like sort of hinted that you didn't have to. Wow. Yeah. So it was, you know, I still felt like I kept my distance and everything, but then I was feeling like, okay, so... I'd even had a conversation with someone about how they were practicing social distancing and venturing out into making new connections and how you sort of negotiate that when you need to keep social distance and that sort of thing. And it sounded very believable and reasonable. But then when I saw the actual behavior was different than what I would have expected from what they had just said, you know. Mm. Hmm. Do you think it was a lack of human connection? was causing this, or do you think it was something political? Uh, I wouldn't call it political. I would call it maybe like social, what, was, what would be the, be the word? Uh, not, pre- not really pressure even, but so, social convention. Like people, people are apt to follow what other people are doing, maybe. Okay, so everybody before the hugger showed up. Before the hugger showed up. <laughs> the hugger. <laughs> Before he showed up, everybody was like chill and 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 nervous about touching or being close to anybody. They were just being cognizant of it. I wouldn't say yeah. That. And and it's like it's like it's like he gave everyone permission to do whatever the hell they want to do. Yes, and they did want to do it. Yeah, you know, it, it was it was interesting, and so I wound up feeling a little bit less safe because I realized I was sitting near people who aren't necessarily paying attention in in all circumstances, you know? So, you know, I just made a point to, and I was going to do this anyway, like make a point of not really sitting in the same spot all for hours at a time necessarily. Mm. Because even with all the air and everything, if you're sitting right, happen to be sitting right next to someone who's infected, 
then you're, oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's it's distance plus time. Exactly. You know, so I spent a fair amount of time in the water and that felt pretty good. And it was it was it was all fine. But then like later in the afternoon, it got a little more crowded and I felt like I just I wanted to head back. And so I left the situation when I didn't feel quite like it was time, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't like in danger, but it, I, I had had enough of that situation. And then I became more vigilant, too, because I realized people weren't really taking the care that I had hoped. So I think what I will do is in the future, I will set up much farther back from the ocean. I'm always comfortable with that anyway. Like I don't need to be as close to the water as possible. I can just hike down there when I want to go in because there were a lot of people like that spaced out much farther back in the, on the beach than you would normally see mm-hmm. and their own spaces. And it looked very reasonable and comfortable and safer that way. So that's what I will do in the future. But it was, you know, it was definitely interesting to see how human behavior works, <laughs> at least in that little microcosm. And it just reminded me to be aware of myself. Like I could see myself getting into a situation where you're just not, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm pretty hyper conscious about all this. Yeah. I mean, if I was there and there and the guy goes, are we not hugging? I would say no. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I would be that person to hug, and I I gave them the talk to the hand maneuver. <laughs> so it's different, but you know, I guess we're all learning how to navigate this stuff, and everyone has slightly different expectations and practices and, and comfort levels. Trying to figure it out. I just read something this morning where the the models they're running in New Jersey are looking at the second wave hitting either this fall winter or in the spring, you know, that in other words, you know, like right now we're kind of all right, but you know, in a few more months, you know, uh, depending on what happens, you know, we may be looking at another lockdown. So I'm surprised I'm, I'm wanting to just kind of be prepared for that and keep, keep being safe as I can while trying to have some, some connections with humans because I'm finding yeah. that's been not good for my mental health to have a complete absence of, you know, connections, but yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. And, and to be, and also to be prepared and to have some supplies and some ideas in place for when this really starts to kick up again, you know? Yeah. Well, I just, as we were talking, I got a notice of an email from the head of my department at the university where I teach. And it, it says that Rutgers, our state university here in New Jersey, um, is saying that in September they, they foresee that they're going to be doing a combination of both online class and in-person teaching. Uh, so that, and I think that that's what the university where I teach is going to do. And so I've been like really kind of sweating it, wondering, should I, should I, or shouldn't I, should I quit? Should I retire? Should I go be in the classroom and risk, you know, with 30, 20 year olds and risk uh, catching something? I'm worrying about it a lot. Mm. Mm. And can I afford that? So like my life is on the line but I have to pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, I don't know, they're hard decisions. And and there's no way you can say, 
I request teaching online? There is a way to do that, yes. But at the same time, like they say there's a way to do that, that you can do that. But uh, the students have already signed up for my class thinking it was going to be a regular class. So I don't know if they are not obligated to give them a regular class. But also, um, it's there's so much competition for teachers to teach these classes. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give them any reason not to hire me. Hmm. But maybe I should retire. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that the rapid Israeli test... Tell us I, about I, that. What is it? I guess Ben Gurion University has developed. It's not exactly a breathalyzer, but they're using piezoelectric cells in something that you either just like touch a like it'll take fluid from your mouth and and or you breathe into it, and they have discovered that the virus resonates in the terahertz range and it can tell you within a minute wow. whether you're you have an infection or not and they're i think they're at the point where they're trying to get rapid fda approval so i am envisioning you know where these things are deployed freaking everywhere so it's like every time you go into a building or something you have to you have to you know, it's it, it's in you know it's better than the um like metal the detectors gun <laughs> the temperature gun that they're shooting at people now to, yeah. to see if you have a fever. They ended on us and they took my temperature that way, and I was thinking <laughs> not all that indicative, really. You know, no, but I mean you, that's all they have right now. Exactly. You know, but having having a, a a rapid test that can tell instantly if you're sick or not, and then if you are sick, it's like go away, <laughs> go home kind of thing with that with with a vaccine uh, is like that's when i will feel comfortable like going to a public thing that's indoors like a like a movie or a concert or an office building so so hopefully that that will materialize and not be vaporware mm. so so the other insane piece of news that came out in the last since our last episode is that we that the they published they finally publicized that uh russia has been paying bounties for u.s soldiers to to uh, to taliban people how much has to happen before someone pulls the, the trigger on the 25th amendment <laughs> i mean really? yeah yeah i have to say i I don't feel shocked by much anymore, and I don't like that feeling of desensitization, but this one did it. I did, really, if I like, did it, what do you mean? I mean, so, so much shit happens all the time, especially like Trump's latest outrageous thing he says or does or whatever that, you know, I hear it and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's the thing. Of course that he would do that or say that. And and it, I don't like the feeling of not not really fully registering the the depth of some of what's happening so you're I, getting desensitized yeah it's a defense mechanism that everyone was you know at the beginning everyone was saying like this is not normal don't ever let this become normal you know and then i think as a just in order to get through the day some of it starts to feel a little normal 
Well, it's also, it's also, this was like, okay, wow. If you're enraged or outraged 24 hours a day, seven days a week for four years, just think about what that's going to do to your internal organs. Yes, that's true. (laughs) It's, Uh, it's like, how can you can't maintain that? Your internal organs and your psyche. No, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to be in a state of outrage constantly, but I do want to be fully aware I want to be walking with my eyes open you know and uh this one is really yeah I had that feeling that that you said as well Wendy like what is it going to take because this is in no world okay (laughs) you know yeah and in any other in any other world the man would be gone the man would have been gone before now yeah and I think combined with the lack of caring about what's happening with coronavirus, it's it's feels very scary. Like this is we don't have people in charge who care about people's lives at all. No. You know. No. Yeah. And it's interesting. I feel like more often my my choice if I'm choosing between people that I need to vote for, I've empathy is like my number one thing. Mm-hmm. I want to really believe that these, the person I'm voting for has a sense of humanity and cares about humans and cares about all beings. But yes, um, that would be nice. And that's like a weird, that's a weird bar. (laughs) But, but it's, uh, it's one of the things that, you know, for all of, uh, you know, Joe Biden wasn't my favorite, my first choice for president necessarily, but I really believe that he has that. Yeah. Mm. He's a human being. Yeah. He really cares about people and has gone through some shit and you can know, you can feel that he has, he feels things. And yeah, I, you know, everyone has their flaws and all of that, but that's something that I feel like, like having another person in office that lacks that sensibility would be devastating. So yeah, really something that I think about a lot. Mm. Okay. Now we have, let's move on to something less yeah, yeah. depressing. <laughs> yes. Somerville, Massachusetts has done a city ordinance. Is that how they, they do this? But they, they've decided to recognize polyamorous relationships. Yeah, this is huge. I am. I love Somerville, Mass. Actually, um, I was staying with a friend there a while back. You know, just visiting, and I was like walking distance to so many things that I love. It just it was a very comfortable city. I just, I just enjoy the city a lot for for a lot of reasons. And apparently, they have decided to recognize domestic partnerships of where gender and number of people is not. It's it's not defined by any of those things. So if you're a unit of three or four or whatever, um, mm-hmm. that that's your domestic partnership, and that opens up possibilities for uh, healthcare among shared among those people as well. And it just um, it's a it's an interesting, cool milestone. I was really surprised to see this and happy. Yeah, and it's a cool experiment to see how it works, and and it would be. You know, you know, hopefully expanded over time along with many other progressive things that I would like to see happen. 
A federal judge on today sided with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and ordered the Dakota Access Pipeline to shut down. Awesome. That is good news. That, that took too long, but yes. Yeah. Excellent. Until right. an environmental review is done. Mm, well, it's better than nothing. Yeah. yeah. Just wanted okay. to throw that in. That's all the news we can handle. <laughs> Hello. We want to thank you so much for listening to The Leftscape and for being someone out in the world thinking about, talking about, and crafting the shape of progressive conversation. We love creating this show for you, and we hope you find value in the discussions we bring to the table. If you do, please take a moment right now, go to your Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. If you can, make it five stars. Good reviews really help us reach more people engaged in politics and culture like you. Thanks so much for helping us get the word out about the Leftscape. I'm Laura Peters. I'm from Amnesty International, and you are listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. This podcast is sponsored by wearing pants during video conferences. You tell yourself you won't stand up. You promise yourself you won't stand up. Then you forget, and you stand up. Next time, try... Wearing pants during video conferences. On sale now wherever webcams are sold. And now, back to our podcast. So I'm happy to be here with Dylan Carmichael. Dylan is the founder of Redefining Black Masculinity. It is a project meant to document and express the Black masculine identity and all of its facets. In doing so, it is hoped that insight is provided and an understanding is developed to help expand the culture. And he also says he's just a 24-year-old trying to find his way. So thank you and welcome, Dylan. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Glad to be talking with you as well. <laughs> yeah, it took us a while to get this together, so I'm really psyched. <laughs> yeah, good things come to those who wait. So yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I guess the first thing I want to ask is just how have you been? You know, we've been in the midst of so much pain and protest and tragedy. And uh, how are you? And how are things uh, in your city? Are you in Newark, New Jersey, I believe? Um, I live in Irvington. But okay. Irving, um, if you know of Irvington, Irvington is literally like, I guess, um, Newark's little brother. So I call myself Newark's adopted son just because of the frequency in which like, I go there. Plus <laughs> how much of a role Newark has played in uh, impacting me. I went to middle school there. Um, or rather from fourth to eighth grade, I attended school in Newark and just, I just spent a lot of time there. So, but, um, in terms of how I am, that's such a, it's such a difficult question to kind of just simply answer just because of, you know, obviously all that's going on and just like, you know, really trying to unpackage and process all the thoughts and feelings that go into all of this, you know, because not only are we in the midst of, you know, growing racial tensions you know i it's funny i tell my friends like yo we're, we're, we're at a where it's an impending race war that's about to happen <laughs> but you know i don't really want to qu um, qualify as that you know I, I say that jokingly um but you know in addition to like that um brewing you know um we're in the midst of you know the covid uh crisis and just dealing with all of that so i think just like Looking at how the, both of those things have kind of like impacted me personally for the last three months, I think I'm okay. But, you know, I think just in grappling with both those two things, you know, I think there's a bit of anxiety on my side. And um, just because, you know, 
um, living with my parents and living in a household, you know, where um, I have people that are, you know, kind of at risk when it comes to the COVID thing. It, it's, it was a little bit tense, you know, um, especially because, you know, both my mom and dad did test positive for the virus. And mm-hmm. just to that, we live with my grandmother as well. So, you know, we're kind of just like navigating that as best as we possibly can. But in addition to, um, in addition to that, you know, um, with all that's going on now, you know what I mean? Kind of just like really getting a grapple on, you know, the, the racial, the racial tensions and just like the issues that we're facing in the country as a whole right now and trying to find my place in terms of how we, how I'm contributing to it. It's just been, it's a lot, you know, because I think that the toughest part about that's facing us when it comes to dealing with all that's happening right now is we're fighting for something that we don't really have a grasp on in terms of what it looks like or what it will be, you know, like we're mm-hmm. kind of like building, we're kind of building the plane as we're in the, in the, in the sky, you know, we don't know what exactly is going to come after all the protests and all, and all the social media activism and all, you know, the, the emails that we're sending out. So it's a bit, it's a bit worrisome because it's like, is this really going to result in something? But, you know, you got to you gotta hold on to faith and keep hope alive. So I think there's a bit of excitement there because, you know, the unknown can bring scary things, but also bring really good things as well. Absolutely. Really. So your project is uh, redefining Black masculinity. So I guess one of the questions that a lot of people would ask is how, how do you define masculinity? And, and secondly, what makes Black masculinity unique? Um, I think for me, defining masculinity, um, in general, you know, masculinity is just, you know, it's what, it's it's kind of what you make it, you know what I mean? I think that's like such a like simple and safe answer, but at the same time, you know, for a lot of, at least my early years, you know, um, going to an all boys school, um, and kind of just like consuming whatever the media like broadcasted to me, masculinity was kind of like what other people made it for me, you know, like, oh, you're supposed to wear a certain color, you're supposed to dress a certain way, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to you're being one of the boys, you know, you got to be tough amongst one, one another, you know, you can't really show emotions as much as you'd like to. Um, you can't do things that are typically seen as feminine or quote unquote girly, you know, like sing or just like sing or be, um, yeah, or be vulnerable, you know? And I think that, um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, or as not even, or yeah, as I've gotten older, you know, and kind of like been able to think for myself a little bit more freely, I think that, you know, I start, kind of started to wipe away those things, you know, and kind of literally just being comfortable in my skin and just being comfortable with what exactly that, you know, what exactly that entails. Um, and that isn't to say that, you know, masculinity is just like, you know, literally, literally any and everything, because, you know, I think that there are differences between masculine and feminine energy. But I think that the, the stereotypical things that are associated with it are not necessarily true. Um, or rather they look differently than what we typically ascribe them to be. So toughness doesn't necessarily mean not showing emotions. You know what I mean? That's not what exactly toughness means or being strong, you know, um, you know, it doesn't involve, it doesn't involve doing harm to one another in order to like show, uh, have a display of strength. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that, you know, um, in terms of the differences or how exactly what makes black masculinity different, I think when it comes to looking at black masculinity, um, I feel as though our masculinity is a bit more policed than it would be for um, people outside of our race, uh, just because of the fact that, you know, I think there was some, there was some um, celebrity that said that, you know, things aren't okay until it's okay. Things aren't okay until it's okay for white people to do so. You know what I mean? And I think that's like, that's definitely something that I've noticed um, being the case because, you know, they are 
they exist as the hierarchy, you know, the patriarchal society is built upon the backs of that we live in is built upon the backs of like, you know, cisgendered white men and how exactly we function is a result of, you know, their, their ideologies and their, how they impose those onto other people. Um, so, um, keeping that in mind, you know, we, we, at least like for me personally, I didn't necessarily have the ability to kind of like more freely express my masculinity, understand what exactly that meant for me until kind of like really observing it from a lens outside of like myself and outside of like, you know, my culture. Um, because, you know, for me, especially because like, you know, in black culture with different or with different things that we were kind of like being, that was being broadcast to us, you know, I was growing up like nine, 10, 11. And when, in the, when in like media, there was a real large growing uh, following and usage of, you know, like, oh, pause or, or no homo or like, you know, things like that in hip hop culture, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that was like something that was so normal for me. But then, you know, I went to, um, I have a different experience than a lot of other guys from like, my area. I went to a predominantly white institution, a boarding school in Pennsylvania. And while I was there, you know, I was kind of seeing like guys get away with things that weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily fit, fit the heteronormative standard, you know, like hugging one another and telling, telling each other that they loved one another, you know, and kind of being really more so expressive in, in phys- more physical and intimate ways than um, than what was allowed for me back home. And that's not to say that I didn't still do that back home, even before going to that school. But, you know, seeing that more more openly, it was like, all right, like I'm more comfortable with this now. You know, like I used to do it a little bit back then, but now I'm doing it more frequently than I did before. So kind of seeing like, you know, they have that past, you know, to kind of be who they are. Although it's not to say that um, their expressions of masculinity weren't toxic in their own ways, you know. Um, I think that got gave me a better understanding of how exactly I wanted to express that for myself and how my growing comfort was developing more. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I have to say, I had no idea that singing would be considered unmasculine, or I guess singing certain things maybe. But I never. But as a blanket statement, that actually really surprised <laughs> me. <laughs> no, I think for me, just because you know, um, before I went to the boy choir school, I know that I used to get like a lot of flack from like my older cousins. You know, they would make fun of me. They would make fun of me for that. Like, oh, uh, Dylan's going to sing with sing with um, like girls, or whatever. You know, and just like do that. Oh, okay. It's like you know. I was like, that was something that I saw or was being told at a very early age, you know, so it's kind of like what I associated with that. Wow. Okay. That, that, that makes, yeah, I can see that. Like there's a stereotype about like a choir or choral singing that maybe is not okay or something. That's, uh, it's all crazy, but it's interesting to just note the different gradations of what's, what's okay and what's not, you know, and trying to, um, to break that down in some ways. Yeah. So the masculinities that you're talking about extends to um, others outside cisgender men? Oh, 100%. Um, I think that, you know, there's there's something like, I'm I'm not going to necessarily dive into it on the podcast. You know, it's more something I'll keep to myself. (laughs) But uh, um, we can talk about anything here, but that's, you're welcome to say or not say whatever. (laughs) No, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just like thinking, you know, um, about something, but. Okay. Save it. Um, but yeah, no, definitely extends um, past, you know, cisgender men just because, you know, I think that all, more often than not, you know, I think that uh, when it comes to like how we ascribe masculinity or more, or how people think of masculinity, you know, we kind of don't necessarily include the fact that, you know, masculinity can be um, can be possessed by women. You know what I mean? It's not something that's necessarily exclusive to, um, to cisgender men and vice versa. You know, cisgender men can possess femininity. And in addition to that, you know, like we have to also be mindful of the fact that trans men are men and how masculinity can be possessed by them as well. You know, and uh, also regardless of sexuality, you know, like 
masculinity is present, um, you know? So I think that, you know, with the project and um, how exactly I approached it, even in like the lo- the label logo, um, the idea of intersectionality is something that's like, re- this was really big to me just because the fact that, you know, black masculinity is something that's present um, amongst all of us, regardless of like, however we fit in under that umbrella, you know, um, whether it's religious identity, sexual orientation, um, ethnic background, all of those things, regardless of what it is, you can still be black and masculine. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I identify as non-binary too. So I've had a lot of sort of thinking about how I feel about my masculine parts of myself and also how I present it. And because it's an interesting balance between like presenting in a way that I feel fully who I am and presenting in a way that I, people understand the signals and get sort of the general idea of me somehow. So it's been, it, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, I have a lot of questions about it still. So it's kind of interesting to, uh, to just explore all that. I and I think that's that. something that's great too. You know, the fact that, you know, at, our understanding of our own masculinity, you know, as we continue to get older and grow, is something that's constantly developing. And, you know, like, it's not something that's going to be the same as, like, when I was, like, you know, as when, like, maybe you were, like, 11 or 12 years old. You know what I mean? It's definitely something that's different. Same for me. Mm-hmm. And as we continue to grow and, like, expand, like, the horizons of what exactly masculinity looks like, it's something that we grow more comfortable with and how other people grow more comfortable with their perception of it. So it's something that, you know, like you said, you're you're getting better at it. And that's something that's amazing. The fact that we can continue to improve and develop upon with this. Yeah, exactly. So how did your project get started and kind of what forms does it take? Like, I know that this is sort of, it sounds very conceptual. So I know I've seen some things on Instagram. I don't, I think maybe you've had some videos, like what is your, well, I guess tell me the origin story and then let me know sort of how, how you're presenting this right now. <laughs> All right. So the origin story is funny just because like, you know, I like running through the origin story is always something that's really like uh, um, cool for me. Um, so the origin story, I think like, you know, dealing with all my, like literally every single part of my identity, like came to a head in terms of like, you know, leading to me to this point in terms of making the project, whether it's be like, um, being, um, a black, a black man, you know, um, in Newark who went to a pre-WI, but his family's from Guyana, you know, um, you know, all like all these different parts, like my identity or whatever, you know, definitely like led me to and like my different experiences led me to like where exactly I ended up at in terms of creating the project. But and you went to where? I'm sorry. I missed the first thing you said. Uh, led, led me to like where I, um, oh. led me to where I am now in terms of creating the project and how exactly like I've continued to push forward with that. Okay. And in terms of like a singular catalyst event, I think is probably um, March 2017. So my paternal grandmother um, had passed away and um I didn't necessarily deal with that as well as I'd like to at the time um, because I still was in school at the time. And I remember going to the viewing service, coming home for the viewing service, then going back to school that very same day, just because, you know, I had work to do, you know, and I had things that I needed to accomplish for the sake of my family and for the sake of, you know, just being, being successful. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, and as a result of that, I missed going to Guyana for the fu- the actual funeral, you know. And then I remember coming home in May and like seeing the in memoriam booklet on like her dress, my dresser, and kind of just being like, "All right, like, why am I even doing any of this? You know, what exactly does success look like? What like?" And kind of just breaking down and like being like, "All right, I didn't really have the time to grieve, and was it worth it to not even go through that grieving process?" Um, but when a figure as significant as like, you know, your grandmother, you know, a matriarch of uh, a side of your family, like passed away, that has ripple effects and doesn't just impact a singular person, you know, it impacts a lot of people 
in the family. And that proved to be the case um, for my aunt and her two kids. You know, she had been living with my grandmother, uh, grandmother's time. And after her passing, they had been evicted from the home. Um, and her two kids, son and daughter, the son wasn't necessarily taking too well to what exactly um, the hands that he had been, that they had been dealt, you know. Um, so they had been uh, living with uh, one of my aunts, but, you know, he wasn't necessarily comfortable with the fact that he was living like in a basement sleeping next to like a washing machine, you know, mm-hmm. and he would stay like, would stay out late, you know, hang out with his friends. And like his mom was just really, mom, sister was just really worried, you know, and just be like, Hey, like we kind of got to go through this experience together. And I still remember, you know, my, my aunt and um, my cousin uh, coming to the, coming to the kitchen of my house to talk to my dad and just be like, Hey, you got to talk to him. You know, you got, you got to tell him that he has to be like tough and be like the man of the house, you know, because like, um, we had a single parent household, you know, he has to be tough and be the man of the house and kind of like, you know, be there in, in it with us, you know? And I remember kind of like hearing from, like hearing from the other room, like, that's not like a good approach for this. You know what I mean? That's not like, you can't tell him just to do that. Just then that's the, like going to solve how he's feeling with this. Um, and I remember just thinking that just wasn't really the greatest approach to how exactly he, um, to the current circumstances, you know, um, that's not to say that he shouldn't have been present, um, with his mom and sister for what exactly was taking place, but just, you know, there has to be more that's being done there than just that. And I remember like talking to my mom and dad at the time and being like, uh, being like, Hey, you know, maybe it's her, um, he could spend the summer with us, you know, because we have an extra room and like, maybe we can kind of just like go through, um, this process together and I could just like help him out, just be a person that's in his corner during the, the during this time. Um, and they were cool with it, but in being cool with it, you know, I have to pitch the ideas to the person that's on the receiving end of it and he has to be cool with it too. Sure. (laughs) And talking with him, you know, that was quite a conversation because, you know, I think that um, it was a conversation where there were no eggshells, you know, where which me and him had an honest dialogue just about like our experiences up to that point. What led us to that point, you know, and like and just like our differences, you know, because he went to the boy choir school as well. And we just went to two different paths. You know, he's four years, my junior. And he was just like, Oh, I'm not as smart as you. You know, I didn't go to the boarding school to a boarding school as well. I didn't have my dad in my life. You know, I spent more time with granny. Like losing her is like more impactful for me. You know what I mean? And like him kind of just like um, slapped me in the face with like, you know, the privilege of some of my, my experiences as well too, while also being while and me hearing that, you know, was like a lot, but at the same time, also being able to tell him, you know, about, being able to just say confide him and talk to him about my experience, you know, the whole boarding school thing wasn't necessarily the easiest on me not being home for like a lot of just life events, being there for him, you know, um, just kind of like the weight of the expectations that were um, bestowed upon me because I had to be, I had to be a successful person. You know, I had to be the person that's like going to save the family, quote unquote, you know, and how much it's a lot to put on you. right? Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a lot, you know, Um, it's a lot to be, to have those expectations from 14 up until, you know, 22 well like up to now too you know what i mean so having that conversation and kind of you know kind of just like me in the middle ground where i'm just like you know like i get like i don't obviously i don't necessarily perfectly feel what you're feeling you know but i can be that like i can be there for you in terms of we can sort through these these feelings that both of us have together um and he was receptive to it and he eventually you know that summer ended up being one of like you know my favorite summers that i've ever had um and that, and through which we just like unpackage, you know, the, the grieving process while also getting closer to one another. And before the summer ended, you know, it was around like August, I was thinking to myself, you know, both of us are going into our senior years of school and how exactly are we going to like, you know, build upon this, you know, because I didn't want to just go back to school and just like leave him there with like, oh, 
this is like, you know, this is, this is just this, you know, this is like, this is how it is. And then we're done. But, um, I remember the initial idea I had for RBM was to be just like, go to a barbershop, bring him with me and bring some friends in, you know, and we would just like talk about, you know, different topics relating to being like a black man in the world, just being black, uh, just being black and masculine, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember workshopping the idea with one of my older cousins and she said, you know, that might not be the best idea because people suffer from groupthink, you know, so people might not feel as comfortable sharing their own ideas. And also in general, people may just feel uncomfortable about speak, speaking up in a room like that, you know? Um, so she said, maybe my better just do like a one-on-one talk, you know, and just like go through those things. So in having, in doing that, I decided on doing like a one-on-one conversation and there was, in having that conversation, you know, we talked about, you know, the impact of just like growing up without, without um, his dad in the household, um, the, imp- the impact of femininity on his life, you know, just how he's growing to understand his black masculine identity in the world, you know, and just like how um, his perception of masculinity has changed as he's gotten older. And in having that conversation, you know, like I documented, um, I, re- I recorded with his consent and also like took a picture, you know, and sharing some, and again, with his consent, sharing some of that, you know, to some, some people that like I was close with, you know, they were like, yo, this is such a great idea. You should have more dialogues like this with other, other people, you know, as you like continue to progress, you know, like at school and just like in general. And with that, you know, like that nudge, that, um, that vote of confidence, you know, I decided to bring that back with like that idea back with me to school and that's how, you know, RBM started, you know, just as like an interview series, you know, documenting or just like having conversations like that with other with other black masculine people and just like, you know, sharing those sharing those topics, because, you know, having those dialogues are important for not only the participants, you know, which is something that I grew to understand a little bit later. You know, the fact that, like, even if no one watches any of the videos, having that outlet for that person that's, that's sitting in an interview with me, having that outlet is such like an amazing feeling for them, you know. Cause like that still means that someone took the time out to listen for them. And that's like a really special thing. Um, but also for people on the outside looking in, you know, people that don't necessarily have insight into the black masculine experience and trying to understand what exactly that looks like and how that impacts um, all of us, you know, that's something that's really special and continue to build off of that, you know, in talking with another one of my cousins, clearly my family like has an impact on me when it comes to all of this talking to one of my cousins, he was like saying like, you know, in terms of doing the interviews are great, you know, but he was saying like how we have to, like, it's, it's important to also like have a very holistic view on what exactly the black masculine identity looks like, you know, capture the joy, capture like the good parts too, you know, the happiness. Um, so in him talking about him saying that, you know, that was like a good um, motivator for me to continue doing um, to do more of the project, you know, whether doing like photo shoots, um, photo shoots and featuring other like creative content, um, dances, uh, poetry, um, song, and just making sure that, you know, I have a very holistic view of what exactly it means to be black and masculine, or at least try my best to have a holistic view of that. And that's what the project has been, um, for the last year and some change, you know, just making sure to have all of it in totality. Beautiful. So, um, best ways to see what you're doing is it Instagram right now, or where can people find your work? Instagram right now. Um, YouTube has like the very early episodes um, that I did while I was at school. Um, but in- yeah, Instagram is probably the best place to check out all my work. Instagram.com slash redefining black masculinity. Okay. Very, very good. And uh, I guess I'll get the YouTube link from you too. I'll make sure it's on our show notes so right. we can check all that out. So given the unique dangers that black masculine people and black men have, uh, in the world, especially now, it's just been, you know, don't even need to explain. <laughs> it's just terrifying, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, 
do you see the role of your project differently after George Floyd and everything else that's happening, or is it sort of going along as it as it was and keeping that core mission? I think the core mission was just you know a means of expression and educating. I think that that is definitely something that still needs to continue to happen. You know because people outside of like you know our our communities and like our cultures really kind of don't necessarily have a whole depiction of us, you know, sometimes it may just, and for some people it literally may just come from hip hop for some people, other people may just come from fictional characters that are on television because, you know, we're not educating um, some of these public schools and just schools in general, we're not educating people on what exactly or who exactly black people are, you know? Mm-hmm. So keeping with like the mode of just like allowing for people to just like talk and share their experiences. I think this stuff is very important in terms of just like humanizing, um, black people you know and black masculine identity specifically just because that's i think that goes in part like goes in part of the work that we're doing now and that's not to say that you know we shouldn't already be viewed as human because we shouldn't but i mean here having a attributing a voice feel um, with feelings to it you know i think that definitely helps um and in terms of just like continuing to push um push as a result of like all that's going on right now i think that you know in a way, in a way, the project is kind of like, at least like the with the recent postings that I've been doing for people, you know, the project has been serving as a space of affirmation and just like a safe place for people to kind of just like rally around, you know, for people to kind of check the page and see like, oh, like, you know, our lives matter. Like, you know, to simply put a spin on the, the Black Lives Matter um, rallying cry um, that to see that, you know, our lives matter, whether it's through through the art or through like, you know, postings. Um, Postings lead into like materials that are meant to help and um, progress us forward as we push through with this more. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I think that's um, it's it's uh, frustrating that trying to prove y- your humanity is part of like your everyday experience, you know. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I'm really grateful to see so much art and um, just expression being being presented i think it's a great uh, great project and a really really worthy pursuit so um i i enjoy your instagram and i'm going to check out your videos and uh, continue to watch what you're doing so um just thank you so much for for this project i'm really glad to have connected with you <laughs> thank you very much for you know um allowing me the space to you know just talk about it you know just because he, not only are you talking about it, but also hearing the words from you affirmations are Definitely one of my love languages, you know, and that, that means a lot in terms of helping me push forward with some of the stuff, you know, because um, doing a lot of the stuff is like just very, um, it comes out of itself. You know, I do like the editing or whatever. Oh, money's coming out of my pocket to like rent XYZ equipment, you know, or like get the space to do this, you know. So like it's hard, sim- simply put, but, you know, it's stuff that is hearing words like that, you know, help me stay motivated and it really does mean a lot. Uh, well, thanks so much. You're very welcome. This podcast is sponsored by that old can of, I'm not sure what it is. Now that you've eaten everything else, look in the back, way back. Yes, there it is. That old can of, I'm not sure what it is. On sale three years ago, at a grocery store near you. And now, back to our podcast. Fascinating. 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 
So uh, I've made everybody watch She-Ra, all of it. We've we've talked about this pretty much after every new season drops because I find some gem of something in it that is relevant to our show. So I bring it up. Really, really grateful too because I don't watch a lot of TV, and when I'm made to watch something, <laughs> I turn out to really love it. That makes me happy. <laughs> I'm glad you really loved it. I really am. We are going to be uh, spoiling probably the whole se- the whole series, but we're concentrating on season five, which dropped a few weeks ago on Netflix. And I thought my my initial take, looking watching it for the first time through and binging it, which I think I did over maybe three days or possibly even one. I don't know. It seemed to me that the writers were giving the next generation, you know, the generation of kids growing up right now, a playbook for how to fight fascism. Mm. That's kind of my, my, uh, my very high level metaphor take on it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. (laughs) And I also thought that we should note that the fascist guy that the, the enemy that they're fighting, his name is crime. And this is a Netflix (laughs) Thing. Yeah, I, know. I think, well, I think actually he was called Prime in the original series as well. But yeah, that that was not lost on me. <laughs> the other the other thing before we get into the, the whole the aspect of the, the gender and sexuality stuff. But before we get into all of that, I, I just wanted to bring up and, and we might as well just get into whatever, because I just forgot what where the hell I was going. with this. <laughs> So, Robin, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, okay. I, I, there, I have a lot of thoughts about all the uh, very different characters, so I was hoping you were going to lead this discussion. But oh, okay, okay, okay. But let me say that I love the fact that the main characters have a very um, consequential love relationship. You know, because over time, like I've seen how queer love and, and, you know, partners or whatever are portrayed like over time in different cartoons and that sort of thing, or just in TV in general. And I think, you know, you start out with being like a laughing stock kind of thing, like a, like a comic relief, maybe like the gay guy is like, mm-hmm. or even not even really a gay guy, just a pretending. Foppish. Yeah. And then there's... We've I, I've seen some like inconsequential relationships that were like for one what I'm thinking of right now and this is not a it's not a it's not an LGBT thing but it's a interracial thing I remember like on I think it was Dexter's Lab where there's like a guy who has a crush on the sister who you know so it's like an interracial crush kind of thing which is okay. cool and it's not mentioned as anything weird or it's not made. It's not made an issue, but it's just. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's cool. They're doing something different, and they're not making light of it. It just exists, you know. And I love that. And then it's cool when, and that's happened. I think with queer characters too, somewhat. Like I'm thinking Sailor Moon 
Although mm-hmm. they, the two sailor scouts that were lovers became cousins in the English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They well, they and actually the last season wasn't even released in the United States. Okay. At all because of the the boy band that their transformation they changed genders. Uh, they became mm. sailors, which who had very female expression. But when they're not sailors, they're this boy band. So and 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 they had these powers. Uh, one of them was gentle uterus, which that. <laughs> That was the translation from the Japanese. I have no idea. It was that just cracked me up about the gentle uterus thing. But um, but you know, but yeah. So there's a progression, and then when you wind yeah. up with, you know, like a love story between main characters, that's central and inspiring ultimately in some ways. You know, I mean, it's 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 cool. Yeah. Okay. I remember what I was going to say that I for, that blank I blanked at. It's this season. It seems that. You know, it, the, the earlier seasons, the main characters really felt like kids or teenagers. Sparkle, her mom was the queen. And and so everybody, you know, we all, it all felt very kid-like. Um, yeah, and, and she was season, drawn more kid-like too. Well, yeah. And in season five, it feels like everybody, it, all of the main characters became adults. They were finally reaching their adulthood. And and even, you know, when She-Ra, when uh, Adora gets to manifest She-Ra again after breaking the sword in season four, her new transformation and costume was well, actually very, her transformation is very Sailor Moon-esque. And I, I do have to preface that I never watched the original He-Man or She-Ra because I am completely the wrong age group for that <laughs> when it came out. And so her final transformation in season five, when she turns into She-Ra, her, her costume is a lot more adult. She's not wearing shorts anymore. And the skirt's kind of like just this ass cape. I don't even know what to call it. it it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's this little semi-skirt that just covers her back and she's got, you know, le- leggings on and not shorts. I think I think her her latest costume is kind of this combination of Sailor Moon and Wonder Woman. It's kind of the vibe I get from it. But and and why is this of particular note to you? It, it well because it's the it's you know it's the their it's their final season. They're adults now. You know they've they've matured. They've come into their own. So. You know, they get to make they get to make grown up decisions like who to hook up with kind of thing. They were implying that there were there were a lot of couples. And I do. The most disappointing thing about the series is how they name everybody. But that, I think, is is a holdover from the earlier version. And and it's just, you know, the names are too on the nose. That's what I was. That's what I was going to say. My insight about it was because I was looking a little bit at the old one, which I remember, you know, and oh, okay. not like I was not a huge He-Man, She-Ra fan, but they were certainly on TV. Like I, you know, I remember them. And when I watched the old version and they're ta- and they're saying those names and like, of course, they're named that, in <laughs> with, that with that particular look that they had. OK, mm-hmm. it makes sense. So it's it's a little it's odder in the new version because they are so portrayed so differently, but it makes yeah. oh, okay. a callback when you think about where it came from. 
Okay. Yeah, but I mean, the names are just too damn on the nose for me. You know, Net Tossa, come on. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Net Tossa. Natasha, it's net. She throws energy nets. Her name oh, is yeah. Natasha. So it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is not where I wanted to go with this. But <laughs> part of it, you know. So I'm interested in some of the relationships. Like, I think a lot of it to me had to do with like when and how can a connection be redeemed. Mm. when there's been mistrust or betrayal or something like that. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I think they kind of, when I watched through it the first time, it felt like a lot of the, you know, when Katra comes into the group and, and actually with Katra and the not Hordak robot guy. Oh, <laughs> uh, wrong Wrong Hordak. Wrong Hordak. Yes, thank you, thank you. Wrong Hordak. <laughs> it's, I think I think they got accepted a little too quickly and easily, and I kind of understand like, oh, I guess they have to wrap everything up in this season, and they're not going to get a sixth season, so they can't like take four episodes to get past you know the betrayal or the you know you were just trying to kill me you know three months ago kind of thing, and then watching it a second time. I it wasn't quite as effortless as I had thought it was through the first viewing. And I think most of that was in the relationship between Sparkle and Bo. Cause he was very angry with her for a few episodes. Yes. Mm. And I think that was supposed to be the because I mean, I guess it would be boring if everybody had to go through that for each character that they brought in. You know, first it's Scorpia. Score, you know, a lot of people from the from the fright zone ended up on the side of the bright moon people and the planet, whatever the planet's Etheria is. That it? I forget mm-hmm. now. <laughs> God, mm-hmm. I just finished. I just watched this like two days ago. I can't even remember. Um, yeah. So, so when these when the when the horde people came over to the Etheria side, I think the forgiveness arc was pretty much encapsulated between um, Spark. Glitter and glimmer. Sorry, <laughs> I was going to call her Sparkle Glimmer. Her yeah, name you called Glimmer. her Sparkle before, I know, and I was wondering her. who that was. Oh my god! Glitter. Sorry, guys. Glimmer, <laughs> um, Glimmer, and Bow. And I think that is supposed to, you know, just cover everybody else getting accepted into into the um, into the group. And I also, I also have to point out that it took me till season season five to realize that Bow is the is the cake or the cheesecake? Yes, he was the cheesecake. Yeah, the beefcake. He was the beefcake because beef his his abdomen was not allowed to be covered at any time, even in a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. And that cracked me up when I saw that. Mm-hmm. And and um and some other people. And since since the season ended, I joined a a Facebook group, a Shira Facebook group, fan Facebook group, and. And they, there was a person there who made a point of pointing out that Catra's spacesuit had ears on it, on her helmet. Yeah, which yeah. I didn't really catch. It didn't. I mean, I saw it, but it didn't like make uh, an impression on me. Like that's significant. But yeah, that was really adorable. Well, I just figured that that she had to fit her ears in those ears. 
Yeah, I well, it's like the spacesuits. That was another thing when I was noticing the spacesuit helmets. It's like, okay, Adora's hair is sticking out the back. <laughs> so That's it's not like, really does, sealed well. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, so the whole thing about forgiveness that's the one thing that i felt sort of melancholy about when i was watching the ending sequences and uh, of them getting together and stuff that you didn't like it they forgave each other or? Oh, I, I loved it it was romantic, you thought it was too easy beautiful but i felt like in my life i would have let that go so long ago oh mm-hmm. you wouldn't have held a grudge I would have, well, I don't know that I would hold a grudge, but I would say this person is not treating me well. I'm out of here. Yeah. And I like to think about the possibility that, like, when do you, when can you know, when do you decide that there's something that's so true that you hold on indefinitely? And when is it, when do you notice that, this is abusive or this is this person is so troubled or whatever that Mm. you need to let that go. Well, I don't know. I mean, we kind of, we kind of covered that in season four when Scorpia left the fright zone because she finally got it that Catra was not a good friend. Right. And, and, And actually they did have, they did have a moment where, you know, there was that, forgiveness they had to they had to make up with each other you know catra had to had to really apologize to scorpia about and i think i think that's part of it because catra really made kind of a a transformation in her attitude and became a person who who was worthy of i guess forgiveness yeah Mm mm-hmm like she was doing the work at a, at a certain point. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I mean, they even brought it up that she, you know, if she even said I, I, she was talking to the plant princess. I want to say Flora, but it's yeah. not. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We know <laughs> you who know you mean. <laughs> Florista, whatever her name is. Mm. Flower child. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the two of them, they had, they had a little bit of dialogue where I, I sh- the the flower princess was was like admonishing her about something and and catcher was saying you know i'm working on i'm working on it but give me a you know give me some you know i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not gonna be perfect yet you know but it's like she got called out on her behavior she recognized it and 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 acknowledged that she wasn't behaving perfectly but she's working on it which was also a good thing to model for people yeah yeah i i was very struck by the lessons that were being taught Um, yeah and and uh the thing about catra being forgiven is also part of it was that she had to forgive herself yeah and before other people could forgive her too yeah there was a lot of stuff about self-worth and love and the fear of um, not having the power to do what you want to do and yet trying anyway. So they, those were good lessons to get. Yeah. I mean, I would like to believe that love will get us out of the mess that we're in now in the real world. But 
I'm not seeing how that's going to work. Yeah. In, in like in the real world context. But you know what? It, it did show teamwork. Yes. That love, love inspired them to work as teams and teamwork is essential, which I, which kind of hit me because um, when I look at something like this, you know, I don't watch these all that often. I, I often think about Joseph Campbell and the archetypal story shape and, and the type of hero, the hero who's supposed to be strong and, and invincible and, and not doubting himself. And yet Adora had all these self doubts and stuff like that, but, but love helped her. Mm. So, and team teamwork is necessary for uh, what we need to do today. True. Yeah. And I think self love is a remedy for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's just that you have to be, you have to get into a state of mind to, see that that's the work yeah and not conflate it with narcissism yeah 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 those are very different things (laughs) yeah (laughs) and how you know how does that happen for someone who's all of their focus if if all of your focus is external and especially if you think there's an external enemy that you're always thinking about or worried about and I think that can go for anyone across the board politically. Mm. All of your energy is the problem is out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and the, that. And I think that that kind of self work is helpful, just because you're going to behave in the world in a healthier way. Yeah, yeah. That that I had a note I wrote down too about about in in a regular. Uh, hero adventure that that the the obstacles that the hero is fighting in order to get to what he the the goal in the end are usually out there like you just said it's it's outer directed but with this thing some the obstacles were self-made very often the people their own self-doubt or whatever their loss of power whatever they did their they had to overcome obstacles within themselves Huh? Well, I mean, that's also a metaphor of uh, having to go into the heart of Etheria in the first place. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that's kind of metaphorical of doing inner work, mm. you know. I mean, especially since they're going through all these deep tunnels and and, and there's the outside danger that, that is going to attack the heart of Etheria. You know, I mean, you could take that as a metaphor of doing inner work as well. I also felt it was a metaphor of um, ecology and yes. the, the planet. Environmental issues, yes. Yeah. Yeah, especially since once they they freed themselves of of Horde Prime, that the entire planet like returned very quickly to Green. a very verdant and lush state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting show to watch. Yeah, and it, and I, I I really do love kid shows that have all these layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to go back because I I think I think when we started talking about it, I watched the first couple to sort of understand the characters, and then just started watching like what I knew we were going to talk about. So there's <laughs> little that I haven't seen that I I really would love to see it all again. Yeah, 
And there's stuff in the earlier seasons that people are pointing out that I didn't pay attention to. Like, like uh, there's a scene, I think, in season one where Scorpia, they pan past like a picture of her family. And the debate on the in the group is whether she has two moms or the one the one character is definitely a very gender ambiguous person and they're holding the baby Scorpia and, and, uh, and, and I keep bringing this up because I think Scorpia is my favorite character. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love the, I think it's episode five where they're sneaking around and, and she gets up on stage and she sings the oh, yeah. I song. I just thought it was, the first time I saw it, I was like crying and I was saying, oh, this is such a great moment for Scorpia. Because like that whole episode is, is you know, and at the end of the episode, she's like, I, this is my, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm good at. Go save, I'll save you. I'll hold, the, hold them back and you guys escape, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I made the mistake of watching Hamilton and then watching that episode. And it's like, well, she's not that good of a singer. <laughs> That's only because I was listening to all these amazing people singing. Well, that was part of what I thought was kind of funny about it because she really wasn't that great, but she was. In- well, I thought she was pretty good the first time I watched it. You, <laughs> the same you, time you were high. Okay. You were high the first time it. you watched it. She's not, she's not the woman that played Eliza. Oh my god! So, <laughs> yeah, after hearing some of those singers, it's like I can't listen to anybody sing for like a couple of days. <laughs> But that episode, that episode was great. And then there was the episode early on in season five, where um, I think it was uh, Swiftwind was updating Shira or Adora. Like he wasn't really communicating with her, but he was sending her these daily reports. And he he sends out like like six or seven what I thought was episode ideas that didn't get enough time to develop into an entire episode. But they still they wanted to use them. They, but they just talked about them, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they could have said they could have had a whole set. They could have. They probably had enough for two more seasons, but I don't think they had. They had the uh, the light, the green light for two more seasons. So they just talked about all these things in this one episode that could have been like six episodes. So, what do you think about the portrayal of Entrapta? Oh yeah, Entrapta. Well, you know, I am not, I don't think I'm autistic, so I have to take other people's words for that. Mm-hmm. But I believe she is supposed to be an autistic person who has trouble reading emotions or understanding, you know, what the, the normal thing to do in this particular situation or reacting badly reacting in a way that you're not that other that a a neurotypical person would not react and she's really into what she's into yeah 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 i liked her you know i really liked her and i was feeling a little bit upset i thought they were overplaying the the comedy aspect of an autistic behavior that mm. was bothering me for a while, and and I think it felt good that she was so instrumental in their success at the end. Do yeah. You, do you think they really set out to make her autistic? Yes. Yeah. 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 I think I think a lot. I think everything they did in there was deliberate. 
mm-hmm. and and thought out. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that was one thing that sort of bugged me that I felt like they weren't making other differences like the joke so much. Well, Seahawk is kind of a joke in some way. Yeah, Seahawk. I think Seahawk is the comic relief. He is. I honestly, I mean, he 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 is the m- most annoying character to me. I know there's a lot of people who are more annoyed with Swift Wind, but he's a horse. So how can how can you not like him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and it's I, and I do have to say that his that whoever's voicing Swift Wind seems to have taken a note from Paul Rudd portrayal of uh, Tina Belcher's ghost horse or imaginary horse from there's one episode where she has, she has this imaginary horse and you see him and he's it's voiced by Paul Rudd. One episode of what? Bob's burgers. Oh, okay. So that's so Swift wind reminds me of that horse that I really enjoyed. So that's why I can't hate Swift. wind. (laughs) even though he may he may annoy some other people so but yeah the 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 pirate guy was i think the most annoying character but i mean he's had some good episodes that episode about friendship with all of the guys the guy adventure in season four was pretty hilarious actually (laughs) i'm gonna have to go back and watch those again yeah so you were saying do you feel like everyone is queer on the show I kind of feel that way, yeah, a little bit. Everybody's a little bit queer on the show, just a little. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure of that. I mean, I feel like he portrays the stereotypic queer guy. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but he's... he's Which one? Swift one of, Wind? No, he's... Uh, Seahawk. Uh, Seahawk. Oh, Seahawk. But he's also in one of the two heteronormative relationships that's on the what, show. That's what I was going to so, say. Yeah. So I was wondering if they were turning that on head. Like oh, they someone's expression is different, but it's not, doesn't have to be in line with what you think their sexuality is, you know? Oh, I yeah. like that. Yeah, I okay. like that. I thought that. Okay. I mean, I do know, I do know straight guys that are flamboyant in that way. I was yeah. married to one for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Look at uh, Kevin Klein. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's good. And it's making me want to watch other queer content like Steven Universe, which I have not seen. Mm-hmm. I've just seen hey. it here and there. And I love it every time I see it. But I need to put it all together in a cohesive story eventually. I was crying at the end of this, at the end of She-Ra this time. Me too. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And it's interesting, and I think that's actually case in point that there wasn't, there was no need of coming out in any of this those stories. People are everybody just was who they were. They just who they were, who they and were. They were just accepted that way. Able to express new love was a different story, but not about oh, there's this thing I have to tell you. It's not. It wasn't that coming out story. Yeah, you know, and and. I didn't realize it took me the second time through to really get how cat like Catra really is. Oh, I think there was, uh, there was one in an earlier season where they have a rope around her, capture her for a short period of time. And she kind of just flops over and, and they have to kind of drag her. It's like how a cat is whenever you put, try to put a leash on them. And then, and then in season five, when they're on, on the uh, first one, ship. 
after they rescue her and she just sort of plops herself into Adora's lap when everybody's mm-hmm. like trying to distract her while she's trying to invoke She-Ra and, and she just jumps on her lap just like a cat would do and she's just laying there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that was like, okay, she really, really is a cat and not just a person with cat attributes. So, you know, that, see, that's, that's the, the comic relief that I see, you know, I, I don't even, I didn't even, I don't even think that, that Entrapta was really there for humor. I mean, some of her stuff was funny, but it was definitely, you know, she was, she felt more, you know, like you're, your tech nerd kind of guy, you know? And I was always worrying, wondering about like, how does her hair work? Why is her hair acting like extra limbs? How did that, I want to know the backstory on that. Mm -hmm. I do. (laughs) She had articulated hair. Yeah. Well, I, I would like to watch the, watch the whole series again, like, as I said, and I'm interested in more stories about these characters so maybe i will check out some of the geek groups that of you know people doing non-canon stories or (laughs) you know or whatever it's interesting yeah i hear there's there's people talking about how to get they want it they want a movie now they want a she-ra movie now Mm. Um, i would be happy with just graphic novels like they did with avatar the last airbender they made they did in between the time when they did avatar and the time when Korra got released they released a few different comics uh, that filled in some of the stories that were left. The some of the some of the loose threads got tied up in in comic book form, but I don't really see there aren't really any loose threads in in this show, but there is certainly room for more stories in that universe. Yeah, there could be new adventures, but yeah, they did sort of take care to make resolutions for all the different characters. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice to know, you know, uh, I, I want to know about everybody's backstories. Yeah. You know, I want to know about their parents and their families of origin and how, you know, and uh, like how, how, how you do it got to be She-Ra. Well, yeah, that, that was kind of explained ish sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm thinking more of more, it. More about Shadow Weaver, how she oh yeah, got to and where her scars came she, from. Yeah, I mean, and when when she her mask dropped at the end, and you get a look at what her face looks like underneath. She's kind of she's one of Catra's people. She's from that species or race or whatever. Except she's gray and not brown. But that I had the thought: is this Catra's mother? you know, or, you know, and cause she, she took on the mother role in their, in their lives. Right. She raised them from mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes me wonder if, if Catra was actually her biological child and maybe that's why she was so hard on her, but that I want to know her backstory. Yeah. She was, a, she was a, can't explain what I would say. Tragic figure but also she was manipulative and yeah caused a lot of discord and also was i don't know you're right she's an enigma really well yeah i mean she because you only really see her as as an antagonist because you're you're really looking at her through adora's and catra's perspective Mm -hmm. 
you know, we, we don't really understand what her personal motivations are, you know, and she's there to, she's there. Her function in the story is to be, you know, to be an antagonist and to cause tension and stuff. But I am very interested to understand how she became so cold and distant. Mm. And then what, because she was so cold and distant, why did she sacrifice herself at the end? I was thinking Professor Snape. <sighs> yeah, but we understood Snape's backstory. Yeah. It's all, it's all, we don't know any of this yet. So, so I would be really know interested that. in knowing in, in, in reading about her story, you know? So, yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for this assignment, Wendy. I really <laughs> got to watch this. And I know that there are going to be some fans of she that are specifically going to listen to our discussion and hoping that they'll share. I, I, I'm not expecting uh, major changes, but I would love to hear, you know, like, because I think there's so many things you could grasp onto as like your favorite bits or your most challenging parts of the story. And it would just be interesting to hear other people's thoughts because it's, there's a lot to it. Yeah, and I I love that it it's supposedly a kids show, and it really isn't. Mm. It's so much more. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening through our discussion. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. You've been listening to the Leftscape podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Thomas Limoncelli. Web hosting by InMotion and remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>